What a great morning. I love having that time together. And I sit there and think, well, I don't know that I have anything more to offer <laughs> than what we've already done. But I am excited about our passage this morning. And uh, one of the things I thought of as I was working through our passage was uh, an author that I ran across when I was in college. His name's Tim Hansel. Wrote a couple of books. Uh, one was called Holy Sweat. The other one was called uh, You Gotta Keep Dancing. In one of those books, I can't remember which one it was, he gives an illustration that's kind of stuck with me through the years. He kind of compares his spiritual journey like a bike ride. He said when he first began uh, his life and kind of was young, he looked at life like he was on the bike and God was some distant observer, just trying to watch and see if he made right turns or wrong turns. But he was not connected at all. But then he was introduced to Christ, and it began to change his perspective. And then he said, you know, life became more like a tandem bike, where Jesus was actually along for the ride and was helping me pedal, and it was a different kind of life. He says, but everything changed the day that Jesus suggested we trade places. Because he began to take me to places I would have never gone on my own. Introduced me to situations and to people that would ultimately transform my life. And he said, he said, I didn't really understand true delight until it was Jesus who was directing my life. What's even more amazing about this story is if you know a little bit about Tim Hansel, you know that he was a remarkable man, very outdoorsy kind of guy. In fact, he started one of the very first Christian outdoor ministries in the United States. But on one of those adventures, he had an accident that left him just shy of being paralyzed. He fell into a crevice, and he fractured his spine in a number of places. And for the next 35 years, he would live (laughs) in uninterrupted pain. There was never a moment in his life when he did not hurt miserably. And so part of his journey was learning to find joy in the midst of his suffering. He said pain was unavoidable, misery was optional. He says, my true delight was only discovered when Jesus was the one who was directing my life, even in the midst of his pain. I I tell you that story because I think in many ways, that's where James wants us to go. The more I read, the more I see an audience, a, a people he's writing to, who simply like to be in control. They like to chart their own course, go their own way. Jesus is a part of their story because these are believers. But I'm not convinced that he's the one that is directing their life. I think they're letting the world define what it means to have a life of success. They're relying on worldly wisdom, how they feel, what they desire, what makes sense to them. In their selfish pursuits, they have lost sight of God's kingdom purpose for their life. And in the end, they've made the wrong things the the main things. And James is trying to bring them back. In fact, I believe God is speaking through James and inviting them to something more. Something far better that they can find on their own. But it can only happen. When they're not the ones who are in control. Jesus is asking them to trade places. So that he can direct their life. I believe in many ways when we look at this letter from James. We can say the same thing is true for us. 
God wants us to understand that we will only experience the good life when we start, stop looking for the, a better one than the one we have right now. We will never have enough worldly success to ever, ever be satisfied. And selfish ambition leaves every one of us feeling empty. So as we look at our passage this morning, I, I want you to at least consider and in, in turn listen for an invitation. An invitation from God for something more. A delight that can only come when Jesus is the one directing your life. And let's see what that looks like in our passage this morning. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we do want to come before you humbly this morning as we look at your word. It has the power to transform our life. And so we want to consider each word very sincerely, wholeheartedly. And yet we know we live in a world that's full of distractions from the week behind to the week ahead to even things happening in this moment. So Lord, miraculously work in this moment to put our eyes on you. To set our hearts on you, our affections on you so that we can hear your love for us. Lord, that's our prayer. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So if you would, turn to James chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. James continues writing his letter and he says, What is the source of your quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. And you're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Now, I'm not going to suggest that James has been beating around the bush up to this point. However, I will say that this is the main point of his letter. In fact, I think this may be the very reason that motivated him to write in the first place. James has found out about about all the, the conflicts and quarrels that are going on in the Christian church. And based on what has already been addressed, we can kind of see why. We can see that there's a, a selfish influence that's making its way through the early church. James has already identified those who are learning truth without living truth. People going through the motions, maybe attending church and involved in community, growing in knowledge, but yet what they continue to learn is not impacting how they continue to live. They're too focused on themselves to let God lead the way. They're living in community, as we've seen, but yet they're not caring for the needs of people around them. They're relying on worldly wisdom instead of of trusting in God's Word. They're lost in the pursuit of selfish ambition, trying to, to find purpose and meaning in life without truly and wholeheartedly relying on God. So, knowing all this, it's not hard to understand why there are conflicts and quarrels in that kind of environment. And so, James wants to get to the heart of the issue here. And so, he does uh, explicitly. He asks the question, what is the source? What's the heart of the issue behind all these conflicts and quarrels? In other words, what is the root cause of this relational dysfunction that is going on inside the church? And then he answers. 
by describing this war that is taking place within their hearts, a, a battle between pleasures, a battle between what they have and what they want. In many ways, it's a game of comparison that creates a heart of discontent where what I want is determined by what others around me already have. And so we look at this and we see that it's a battle between pleasures. That word pleasure actually is a word that is is hedony. It's where we get our word hedonism. And so what James is saying here is that the true source of the conflicts is a sinful pleasure, a selfish pleasure, an insatiable appetite for more. See, I believe at its core what this is, an attempt to live life on my terms. And Jesus is just along for the ride. It's a hunger to see other people, to have what other people already possess, so that they become an obstacle to your happiness. That's why he says, you do not have, so you commit murder. Now, I don't believe that there was rampant homicide going on in the early church here. That's far too serious of an issue for James to just mention it and then move on. However, I will say that it's not out of the realm of possibility. Because is that not the reason that Cain killed Abel? Wasn't it the reason that David killed Uriah? Wasn't it the reason that the religious leaders ultimately crucified Jesus? See, the message Jesus was saying was essentially, I have something that you desperately need. I am the answer to what your heart longs for most. In fact, you cannot be satisfied apart from me. And if you reject me, you will not be accepted by God. Now, that's an offensive message to those who don't need a Savior. It is a roadblock in the path of selfish ambition. Because in order to accept Jesus, you have to trust in Him more than you trust in yourself. You cannot be in charge of your life if Jesus is your Lord and Savior. That's why Paul writes to the Galatians. In chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and who gave himself up for me. What Paul is essentially saying there is, the Lord is the one who is directing my life. And my true delight comes only when that's true for me. James is writing to those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, but are now trying to navigate life on their own. I don't know that it's an issue all that different than what Paul addressed with the Galatians when he told them, and he asked a similar question. Why are you who were being born of the Spirit, which is the only way, by the way, now trying to be perfected in the flesh? Is it somehow the case where once we become a Christian and seal the deal, that we no longer need God? Is that how this works? See, that's why at the end of verse 2 it says, you do not have because you do not ask. The absence of prayer reflects a heart of pride. You don't ask when you don't need. 
we don't turn to God when we're doing okay living for ourselves. And I think that's the heart of the issue that James is addressing here. Look at how he continues in verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. <laughs> I believe James may be turning to another group here who's protesting his earlier comment saying, no way, James, that's not true. We pray. We pray all the time. He says, yeah, but when you pray, your heart's not in the right place. You're looking to God as a means to get what you want instead of aligning your heart with his will. You're asking for things that are centered on you instead of ones that bring glory to him. And there's a difference. Look at how he continues in verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Wow, this is getting really heavy. That's a strong indictment. Adulteresses. That's a woman who has uh, confessed a devotion to a man but looks to be satisfied in the arms of someone else. James is looking at the church and saying, you're that woman. You are the bride of Christ. You profess an undevoted or undivided devotion to God. And yet you look to be satisfied in the ways of the world. Professing love, but seeking satisfaction somewhere else. See, it would not be okay for me to be married to my sweet wife and then live with another woman. I can't tell her I love you and then go to someone else and say, but I'd rather be with you. (laughs) It doesn't make sense. Now, you need to know that she's my best friend. And I'm completely devoted to her alone. And that undivided devotion is what validates my love. Otherwise, my words are meaningless. And the same is true in our relationship with Christ. By faith, we enter into a covenant relationship with God, much like marriage. It's an exclusive commitment, unrivaled by any other interests, which is why we can't say we love God And then look to be satisfied with worldly desires. Our actions betray our words. Look at how he continues in verse 5. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. I want you to know there are some beautiful truths in these two verses. There is great comfort. Listen to me. There's great comfort in knowing that we serve a jealous God. Now, you may hear that and think, but that doesn't make sense because we don't often look at jealousy in a good light, do we? In fact, James has actually condemned them for their bitter jealousy. So let's take a minute and consider what it means to understand the righteousness 
the righteous jealousy of a loving God and the selfish jealousy of sinful man. See, bitter jealousy is a sinful desire for something someone else has. It's when I want something you have to make my life better, even if it costs you. That's bitter jealousy. Righteous jealousy is just the opposite. God sees something that we don't have that he wants to give us. He is jealous when we settle for things far less than what he is able to offer. See, sinful jealousy looks to take. Righteous jealousy looks to give. You see the difference? God is jealous of our devotion when our hearts are not fully committed to him. And not because he's missing something by not having our love. God is completely sufficient in and of himself. We're the ones who are missing out. And that's why he's jealous. Because he wants us to have something more. And he's inviting us to something better. That's where the great grace in verse 6 comes into play. What incredible grace for God to keep pursuing us even when we have rejected him. What amazing grace that does not allow our sin to stand in the way of his love. What incredible grace when God remains devoted to us even while we are distracted from him. People, that's great grace. And that's what James is referring to. He quotes Psalm 138 when he says, God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. He's identifying the fact that the root of all sin is pride. A selfish independence from God. And the worst judgment of God could possibly be, in my opinion, is leaving us to ourselves. Just letting us continue. But the kindness of God is when we experience the consequences of our sin, both in our life and in the lives of those around us. There is a social dimension to our sin. What I mean by that is what is happening in my heart can't help but affect those around me. And as HUD has always said, sin splatters. And typically the people who are closest to you are the ones who get hurt the most. When we lose battle with sinful pleasure, we wage war against those who stand in the way of what we want. And yet God, because of his great grace, always stands ready for everyone who repents. It says he gives grace to the humble. There's nothing outside the reach of his redemptive hand. He will rescue those who humbly confess before him. It's like the old song, his grace is greater than all our sin. That's good news. Look at how he continues in verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. 
Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. I believe what James is doing here is calling Christians to live with an undivided heart. The word submit is the idea of a willing surrender. It's a decision to trust in God more than you trust yourself. And in its context, by what we see being communicated here, I believe it's referring to a humble heart of repentance. Looking to God as a rescue from sin. And I want you to notice that how turning to God takes Satan's power away. And here's why. As a Christian, Satan has no right to rule in your life. As a Christian, Satan has no right to rule in your life. Your faith in Christ removed you from the power of sin's control. But Satan still has the power to deceive you. Not in order to take your salvation away, because that was purchased by the saving blood of Jesus Christ. And your salvation is secure in him because of his promise not your performance. But what Satan wants to do is cause you to miss out on all that God has made possible, to distract you from divine blessing, all that goodness built into his design. But listen to this. Satan can only have power in your life as a believer when you give him permission. It's the only time. Satan can only have power in your life as a believer when you give him permission. That's why it says, resist the devil and he will flee. It's not he might go away or he could go away. It's a statement of assurance. He will flee because he has no right to control your life. Peter makes a similar claim in case you may be doubting what I'm saying. Listen to what he says. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in the proper time. Cast all your anxiety upon him, because he cares for you. Be sober in spirit. Be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to desire. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, will himself confirm, will himself strengthen, will himself establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. There's some assurance in that verse. A promise of God's provision. Resist the devil and he will flee. But do you notice that for both James and Peter, they begin with the same call to humility. Be humble. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. We draw near to God when we go to our knees in humble and sincere prayer. And God's amazing love And His great grace is what lifts us up. I can't help read the beginning of verse 8. Draw near to God. 
and he will draw near to you and not think of the prodigal son. (laughs) That son who took all of his inheritance, and what did he do? He went and spent it on selfish pleasure. And when he had nothing left, nowhere else to turn, he comes home. And all along, his dad was waiting on him. And when he saw his son, he ran to meet him. When you read this verse, you should see the very same thing. Draw near to God and he will run to draw near to you. Now, some of the language there as he continues sounds a little confusing. Because look again at the second part of verse 8. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. You double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. So is James suggesting that Christians are called to be miserable? (laughs) Is that how we prove our piety? No, I don't think that's the case at all. I think what he's referring to here is a, a true heart of humble repentance. Someone who really does recognize their sin. They're regretful. They desire something different. They see their divided heart, their sinful actions, and they're grieved by those sinful choices. This is a picture of Isaiah to me. Remember when Isaiah stood in the presence of the holy God, what did he say? Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. The holiness of God is brings light to our sin, and praise the Lord for that so that we don't have to live in it unknowingly. It's important to recognize the sin in our heart, but it's important to understand that's not where God wants us to live. We know that because of verse 10. Look at how he ends. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Jesus said everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Christians are people of confession because they live in the joy and the assurance of God's faithful forgiveness. Like Tim Hansel, it's learning to to know that that our greatest desire, our greatest delight is when Jesus is the one who is directing our life, living in the light of His great grace and His faithful forgiveness. The good life only exists when we stop looking for a better one. Our hearts will never be satisfied with worldly desires. And selfish ambition leaves every one of us feeling empty. But the Bible is inviting us to something greater, something more. It says that when you delight yourselves in the Lord, He'll give you the desires of your heart. It says, taste and see the goodness of God. (laughs) And how blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Listen to Psalm 16, verse 8, where it says, I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My glory rejoices. My flesh will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to death. Neither will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. That promise, praise God, has been fulfilled closes in verse 11 by saying you will make known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy 
And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Jesus is inviting us to something more. And there are passages like that filled all throughout the Bible who help us, that help us understand what that's supposed to look like. I believe one of the things that James is trying to do for the people who, is, who are receiving this letter is to help them understand what it means to have a humble heart of prayer. Several times he's mentioned I'm asking the Lord or submitting to the Lord or, or drawing near to God. I, I believe James is pointing to a, a pattern of prayer in the life of a believer. A humble heart that sincerely looks to God to direct their life. Not a selfish prayer that looks to God to give them what they want, but a humble prayer that looks to God. That, that He might align what they want with what He desires. So that their heart's cry becomes His will for their life. Living a life that ultimately gives glory to God. We've been saying for weeks now that what we just talked about here is not a one-time deal. It's a daily surrender. I think we see the same thing in the letter of James. It's a persistent pursuit of an undivided love, a daily surrender. The absence of prayer is often the sign of a selfish heart. A pattern of prayer is someone who sincerely wants to know God. Martin Luther known for being blunt, said it this way. He said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. (laughs) So let me encourage you. If you're married, establish a pattern of prayer with your spouse. Go to the Lord together consistently. In fact, when people come to me and they express a concern about issues in their marriage, one of the first questions I always ask is, are you praying together? Because if you're not, that's where you need to start. Praying together will knit your hearts together as you go to the Lord together. So if you're married, establish a pattern of prayer in that marriage. And for your family, do the same thing. Make prayer a pattern of how you live life together as a family. If we want our kids to grow up depending on the Lord, we need to show them what it looks like to draw near to Him. We can't expect it to be a pattern in their life if it's not a habit in our home. So establish a pattern of prayer for your family, for your marriage. And boy, it sure needs to be a pattern of prayer right here in our church where we are consistently going to the Lord together. In our small groups, when we go have lunch together, when we just gather in our living room to pray for one another. I'm convinced that Brian and Ashley... Vidi are here this morning because of your faithful prayers. We asked the Lord for months, months, will you consistently confirm or clearly redirect? And I'm convinced that he answered the prayer and that they're here today because of the Lord directing us and directing them. And this is a beautiful thing. You know, when we pray together as a body, the Lord works in our hearts in ways that are really, I think, difficult to accomplish when we try to do ministry apart from Him. I think when we simply pray together, there are things that He does in our heart that can only be accomplished by Him. And for us individually, and for us as a church, we need to be convinced that 
the greatest delight that all of us desire is only made possible when Jesus is the one who is directing our life. Individually, marriage, family, church. So let me encourage us to to promote and encourage that pattern of prayer. And with that in mind, let me pray for us. And then I want to introduce you to the Beatties before we leave this morning. Father, thank you so much for your great grace. And I'm, I'm just grateful that even when you speak through James such harsh words of, of, of adultery, of pursuing other things and betraying the relationship that they have committed to in you, that you have yet called them back to something more. That there is a jealous love that desires for them to experience something greater than what they've chosen. And that's what you desire for all of your children. You, you want to see your goodness on display in our lives. And when that happens, that's how your glory is made known to the world around us. So Lord, help us to be humble, to be prayerful. May that be a consistent pattern in our life through humble prayer. We pray this in your name. Amen.